Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Health Science Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Devin Boggs. I'm joined side by my co-host, Zachary Hunter. What's going on, man? I'm on cloud nine today. Cloud nine? I'm running out of ways to say I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come back better next week, folks. You know, what you should do is just, just I know I know cloud nine's a cliche, but like, you know, tomorrow you'd be on cloud 10. You're just cloud hopping all the time. You see how many... That'd be a good way for us to keep track of what podcast episode we're on. Just put Cloud Zach on. All right. So today we're on Cloud 14. Cloud 14. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Podcast number 14. That makes sense. Um, if you want to hear more from Zach, he's the host of the Fiscal Frisk podcast and all the same platforms you find us. And if you want to learn about fiscal and monetary policy, he's quite the expert. So check him out. Thank you for the plug. The song you just heard was graciously given to us by Daniel Hughes. It's a friend of the podcast from the UK. If you want to find more about what he's up to, it'll be in the description. Now today, we've got another listener request. This is from Ali Ahuda, who happens to be my girlfriend. So I kind of have to do this. Yeah, you can't really turn down her request. <laughs> now, the study is interesting. Um, it's because of what type of study it is. Now, this is a systematic review. We've never done one on the show before. The title of the paper is... Role of Nutrition and Exercise Programs in Reducing Blood Pressure, a Systematic Review. Pretty simple title. Yeah, it's clear. I knew all of those words. And it's clear. We're going to be looking at diet and exercise, how that affects blood pressure. Now, systematic reviews can sometimes be, I would say, inherently a little boring. Very. It's a More review. than little. <laughs> it's, a, it's a review. You know, and a lot of the paper literally just says, you know, this study found this and this one too. And this other study found this. And it kind of just amalgamates it into one place. And yeah. like it's know, the, fine because you get a lot of information in one yeah. place. But like, you know us, we like the the meat of, uh, and they're, they're trying to take the best parts, but sometimes. Well, like, you know, this is, this would be different actually than the review paper that we did earlier. Um, a systematic review. The systematic part is kind of the important thing. And yeah. um, that's what we're going to kind of focus on. So, you know, they'll, they'll put out all this information and the authors can kind of speculate on different methodological differences that could potentially kind of explain, you know, why one study would see this big of a change and other studies would see maybe more or less. Um, now, because I don't want to just read the paper and, and say this and that, and that was that. It's like, I want to be a little bit more, you know, kind of a, a, we want to do an outline of the methods behind a systematic review. So let's start with kind of the main question is like, well, what is a systematic review? Why would we do one? Now, by definition, systematic review is the application of systematic strategies to limit bias in gathering, critically appraising, and a synthesis of relevant studies on a specific topic, which is basically just saying it's a rigorous way to limit bias, gather up studies, um, and do an analysis on them. Another another term you might have heard is a meta-analysis. Yeah. Now, these are when you take the results from these studies and you pool them together to get kind of an overall effect size of whatever you're measuring. In this case, um, it would be exercise. Yeah. Now, you, you can have a systematic review without doing a meta-analysis, but not the other way around. Mm -hmm. Meta-analysis is a little bit less like an extension of that. Yeah. Um, and there's reasons for doing that, but we can cover that in a different one. Um, now, oftentimes researchers will kind of just choose to stick to the systematic review because the meta-analysis are, are pretty hard and there's tons of places to go wrong. There's a lot of math stuff too, like normalizing the values and standard deviation units and yeah. blah, blah, blah. It's, it's a little bit more challenging uh, for, for authors to do and yeah. even for us to even analyze. There's yeah. a lot of stuff to get into. So we'll start with this one with the systematic review. Um, so yeah, why do a systematic review is that, you know, sometimes single studies 
fail to detect or even exclude really small effects. So having a systematic review or even a meta-analysis can kind of strengthen understanding by summarizing everything we know in one place. Yep. And in the case of a meta-analysis, you're summarizing it into one number. That's kind of the difference is like, you know, the, the systematic review is like, this is all we know. The meta-analysis is like, this is all we know. And this is the number that represents it. Right. Yeah. Um, so what is the purpose of this particular systematic review? The authors give us some background, of course, and then they say, you know, we know diet is important um, for high blood pressure um, and exercise. So we don't really um, have a summary of, of how they both work together, though. That's, that's the, the gap they're trying to fill. They, okay. the, the, the background was just like, you know, we know that one's good for uh, diets are good for high blood pressure. Exercise is. But what about, you know, if we combine them? Yeah. What's the consensus? So let's gather all the information and, and put it in one place and see what we got. So their their main hypothesis is that combining diet and exercise will have a greater effect than either one alone, which is it's pretty logical. I mean, yeah. I could have came to that conclusion. You could have too. Yeah. Just from kind of, you know, how much everybody knows. You got to eat well. You got to exercise, right? Exactly. So the first step is we have to find relevant studies. This is done, again, in a very systematic way, so much so that they actually have a flow chart of all the studies and why one's included, why one's excluded, da-da-da, this whole step. Yep. Until they narrow down you know, this search into its smallest form. And the first step is going to be doing a keyword search in a research database like you know, PubMed is kind of the most popular, right? Right. So the authors define their search terms. And it's kind of like a sophisticated Google search if you want to make it really simple. It's like there are terms and tricks to get kind of more accurate yeah, like searches. Yeah, and or or, or the yeah. and or. And when you exclude. do that, when you do that, it's going to specify and include or exclude certain terms. But those are only terms that are in the papers. We still don't know what the papers are about until we get them. So yeah. that first step gets you a lot of papers. Yep. Um, and it's just the key word search so you do have to narrow it down tremendously so the initial search how many with like so they they did um you know exercise high blood pressure um you know nutritional control like stuff like that those terms how many studies do you think just just out of thin air how many studies do you think they got from that well i'm assuming in like the hundred thousands we got fifteen and a half thousand studies on that one topic and I, well yeah. actually i should mention too is that it is restricted to a time range i think this was um 1978 so somewhere in the the mid 20th century all the way up until 2017 yeah. so it wouldn't be including everything that was before then and we were doing humanity was doing stuff before <laughs> doing that so yeah 15 and a half thousand studies um so they did this and they start eliminating studies and they eliminate duplicates which gets them down to 11,558 his screen for the types of studies, the outcomes, the populations they use. You want to make sure all these are the same. Yeah. Because again, with with the conclusions, if I'm taking all the information and, and gathering it into one place, well, I got to make sure the information is about the same stuff. Exactly. Right? If you did it in kids versus you did it in other, like it's not going to match. So yep. you make sure it's all the same. Um, and, you know, for example, they got rid of retrospective studies, right? Um, these are the studies where you find people with your outcome and then you measure their level of potential exposure and then you can get like a, a correlation between those. Yeah. Now they excluded those because, you know, the area of interest here, the authors involved, uh, or sorry, the area of interest to the authors involved performing experiments. So they got rid of those, la la la, cutting it down, cutting it down. And through this process, they got down to 144 studies. And then they did an even more rigorous exclusion criteria. And they actually had, you know, legitimate, uh, professors, people that are qualified reviewers, they're going to go over it, right? Yeah. Um, 
and guess how many studies they had left at the very end? From 15,500 studies, they ended up with nine. That's a good end. filter process. So it's a far, far cry from 15,000, right? Yeah. Which, A, goes to show you how much research is just going on. Like, you can type those keywords in, and, and those words are in 15,000 studies. But then there's only nine of them that are going to be, like, on the exact topic that we're in. So it, it shows you the breadth of, of stuff that's out there, too, yeah. right? Now, one thing I wanted to mention is that they didn't do prior to their search um, was to explain what's called their hypothesis of heterogeneity, which is like saying if there's going to be any differences between these studies. So we, we've narrowed it down. We've got nine studies. Before they did that, if there were going to be any differences between these studies, why would this be? Right. right. And, and this is something that needs to be hypothesized prior to looking at the results of these studies. And this is crucial. Why? Because it has to do with how we predict things. We can't look at the results after the fact and then say, well, you know, this measure was elevated, so that's what caused it. Right. It's like, well, the thing is, is, is you know, it's like the saying is like hindsight is twenty twenty. It's like the scientific version of that, right? It, yeah. You know, we're only dealing with, remember, a sample of people from the population. Right. And we try our best to make sure the sample's even, but it's not perfect. Right. If we make a causal hypothesis after we get the data, we risk making conclusions that are only applicable to the sample and not the entire population because we're seeing what we want to see only from one perspective. Yeah. This is a bias. So if we make a general hypothesis about the population, the sample might fit it. Right. But you have to make those prior. You can't just look back and be like, oh, this is what caused it. Um, we, have to, we have to make sure we make that hypothesis and if the sample fits it, good. Um, you know, and then we can, but making those assumptions after as very bad practice. Right. Um, and the paper didn't discuss any potential sources of heterogeneity. They didn't even speculate on, you know, methodological differences or population differences at all, which is, it's mildly concerning. Um, but you'll see that their conclusions are pretty soft anyway. So it's not it's over oversight really isn't that detrimental. Okay. Yeah. It's not like they're making life-changing conclusions yeah so it's kind of like i'm okay with it here but it's it's not great practice to avoid that it's a pretty big uh part of it now that they, they show some some plots so because the rest of the, the paper is mostly summary after this part yeah now they show some plots with how much reduction in blood pressure was achieved by these individual studies um and out of all this summary they come to the conclusion that a combination of Strength training and diet control could be beneficial for people with high blood pressure, but they say could. Yeah, <laughs> but but that exercise is more <laughs> essential, more of the essential component of that relationship, um, and that there's not conclusive evidence that their combination works significantly better at reducing blood pressure. But it doesn't hurt. <laughs> so we're kind of left with a bit of a question, right? You know, was this the best systematic review? Maybe not. Um, but it didn't find anything terrible. No. Right. No. Um, you know, so at least we didn't find anything really negative when we combine diet and exercise. But at the same time, did you really need a systematic review to guess that? Well, I wonder if because this was just a systematic review, I wonder if they did the meta analysis, if they could have made stronger conclusions, if like they're able to find and use like the standard deviations and what you said and use more of that math and actually use mm. a number. If I'm going to be honest, looking at the, looking at the, I think they're called forest plots. 
Yeah, I didn't like. I didn't see any of it the data. Or like the they, they put the data there. Yeah. It's just the the, the meta analysis would have taken those numbers, and yeah, like like normalized them, put them in standard deviation units, and then they have an overall effect. Yeah, and they would have put that. It's usually like if you ever see them, it looks like a little black diamond on the on the page. Yep. Um, and then it has error bars. It, they would have done that. Um, and just judging by kind of where everything is. Not really. I, I couldn't see, even if they did a meta-analysis, okay. I don't think it would have been very conclusive. No. And right? then uh, maybe we can just talk about, because, like, you know, uh, we are just generally talking about this might have not been the best. Like, can you maybe talk a little bit about what would be, like, strong qualities of, like, a good systematic review? Or yeah, like, so, like... Um, like, or we talk about uh, those qualities a little bit more. Let me bring it up here. There's... Uh, there's, there's actually guidelines for this stuff. Um, this one, particular one's called PRISMA, and they actually followed PRISMA. Um, PRISMA stands for the Preferred Reporting Items for Systematic Reviews and Meta-Analyses. So this is like, um, usually uh, a lot of researchers will like get together and they'll go over like in these, these big meetings and they'll kind of go over like what, what makes a good systematic review. Like no. if we make a guideline that people can follow, um, if they follow that, we're going to get the least amount of bias um, and the least amount of, of issues with, with some of the outcomes. Right. And that's really important because, you know, if, if one researcher in one part of the world says, well, I'm going to do it this way and this is better and this is better and this is better. It's like, no, let's all get together and just kind of agree on, on what is the best one. So right. um, the problem with, with um, systematic reviews too is say Prisma, for example, is just kind of, um, it's like a checklist of what you're going to kind of like report when you're doing one of these studies so that, no. you know, every, every systematic review from that point on, if they all follow Prisma, it's going to kind of have the same breakdown. Doesn't mean they're, they're no. as rigorous. You have some that are um, more, more rigorous than others. And there are actually different clinical tools. So this Prisma thing is a clinical tool for, for systematic reviews. But when you do a systematic review, like we had those, these, these professors go in and, and they actually would, maybe give a grade on these papers right. and they didn't mention any of this stuff is a really thorough systematic review. Say it's um, uh, a randomized controlled trial. There's going to be a specific way to do a randomized control trial. Yep. So you would go in and you would grade that. And then they actually have some meta analysis that do weighted averages. So yeah. if you had a smaller sample size in your study, you're, you're, you're not going to be weighted as high, yep. right? Versus if you have a really big one, you're going to be weighted more. If a sample or if a study did a really thorough analysis, it's going to have more weight. So that's why I kind of wanted to just brush over the systematic review because um, the only glaring issue that I saw was kind of coming up with those hypotheses of, of heterogeneity beforehand. Yeah. But that's why people, not people, but that's why meta-analyses are really hard is because all the stuff that gets magnified because then you have to look at the quality of every single study that you're including in there. And yeah. this one's only nine. Um, what if it's a really highly uh, studied area, you know, of, of science, you're going to get hundreds and you yeah. have to go through all of them and you have to grade them and you have to weigh them and normalize the results and look at all this head and have heterogeneity uh, hypotheses beforehand. It's a lot of work. Um, mm -hmm. I think this one doesn't necessarily, I would say really bad. It was just, it was fairly brief. Yeah, no. And right. but that's fine with like the brief. I just think it's important for like the listeners to know again, just to kind of make this full circle is that this is really important for research mm -hmm. of getting rid of those biases. And like, um, this is a chance to like, if you, again, for those really broad topics and we can make those conclusions by doing those meta analysis, uh, analysis 
and like taking like the very like highly uh debates and all of that and like yeah. putting a number to it or taking all the literature because like even um in the last episode when we talked about different diets and stuff like there's so many different things out there that sometimes it's best like if you just have all the literature in one place and you can actually put like a number to it with like the meta-analysis mm -hmm. or put all the literature there just to have it in one place is just yep. even that can be beneficial for further studies to keep moving further in into research right yeah no and, and that's the thing is like because meta-analyses are so, you know, some people love them, some people hate them. Because it's like, people think, well, how could you possibly take, uh, you know, one study and just say that it was the same as the other? Like, yeah. when you're appraising a study, that's the risk. It's like, when you're talking about, like, maybe just from a number standpoint, as if if I said, you know, um, you've got a 5% risk um, of, of event happening. And then I said, on top of that, if that doesn't happen, you've got another one. Like risks multiply. Yeah. Right. So in this case, if you have a risk of bias, if a paper is not done perfectly, when I bunch all of them together, every little bit of bias that's within each paper, if they're all pointing in the same direction, would multiply to make sure you make yeah. your whole meta analysis really biased. So sometimes right? the the like of being unbiased, you can actually be more biased if you don't do if it you right don't do it right which yeah. is why you have to like be really cautious with that um yeah. and even to the point where where a lot of studies are industry funded right like it'd be like okay you're a pharmaceutical company you want to make sure hey does my my drug work yeah. you know I bet, i've been spending billions of dollars on this thing does it work you're gonna fund a study and say hey we want to find this um a lot of times if it's negative like it comes back and hey your yeah. drug does nothing they won't publish They're it. They're not going to publish it because why and would that, you do that? And you know what? The silly thing is too with even regular research, even if it has nothing to do with the the funding body, yep. if it's just the the journal. Like if I be like, Zach, you did an experiment and you found nothing. The journal's like, okay, why yeah, are we going to? That's not conclusive. Why would I put that in our <laughs> right? journal? So even yeah. even just from the, the journalist, journal integrity, um, it is just harder to find negative studies. So if you have a, a highly debated topic, you find 10 studies um, that say, yeah, it does something Two that say it doesn't do something, but maybe you've got eight that are unpublished that say it doesn't do anything. So you have an equal number of, of studies saying it does something studies saying it doesn't. Yeah. And, and the, the ones that say nothing, they might not, they just might not be published. Yeah. And there are, there are ways to kind of get around that. There's a, I know in Canada, there's a registry board. So like when you apply for a, um, a clinical trial, when you're doing the ethics protocol, they're really rigorous on that because when I submit it, they give me a reference number back and they keep it, okay. right? So that yeah. even if I do that study and I get a negative, there's still a place you can find it. So not not when I want to publish it, but when I initiate the study, they've got a record of it. So you can go back and actually look at unpublished studies and, and see what they found as well, mm -hmm. right? Um, and you'll you'll get basically... A more balanced thing but that takes work that's a lot of work yeah. and that would be then when we go through hey these guys look through to through um pubmed and scopus which are the two big ones um for health science research the databases you know they also didn't look at at unpublished literature yeah that could be another fault too right but again I'm not really worried because the conclusions are so soft. It's yeah. just kind of like, I don't know, did you just want to write a paper? <laughs> right? Like that's yeah. it. So it, it does depend on on the scope of what the authors are trying to prove to you. And if they're trying to change the world, you better be really rigorous. But if you're basically saying that, well, exercise and diet work well together, but like, you know, 
But these are the best ways to make those type of conclusions, though. Like, I just know personally from my finance scope, some of the best studies that I've seen and, like, the ones that came with, like, uh, the way that we change monetary policy or fiscal policy have been metas. Right. Yeah, but so like, like that's the thing is you're changing policy. Yeah. That's real people. Like the whole country is going to feel that. You better be freaking right. Yeah, <laughs> right. So yeah, so yeah. it's just important like the notice, like the importance of it, but how hard it actually is to do it. Like mm-hmm. this isn't just like a normal paper where they can just make their conclusions and do all that stuff. Like the like you have the potential to change a lot. Oh yeah, and I think I wanted to maybe clear up another thing too. Is mm-hmm. you know some people, especially when it comes to health research, can be a little vindictive, and they say, "Well, our researchers just want to get published, and they just want all this stuff." It's like there might be some of those out there, but I, I, and I've, I've done reviews on on studies that are trying to be submitted for journals. Like some of them are just they just don't know what they're doing, no. right? And this is the thing is like when you look at how deep you can get into stats, it's like darn, I might need a statistician on my research team or I might need an yeah. epidemiologist, right? Like they, to, in order to get levels of details, you have to almost mix professions sometimes because yeah. it's it's really freaking hard. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's not just malpractice or people, you know, looking for a financial gain all the time. You get some of those, but the majority, um, they, they just kind of operate within how much knowledge they have. Yeah, and it, exactly. And it, and it develops, right? Like I think like I said, this was, the the database search was up until 2017 hey maybe in three years we learned a whole lot yeah. right and now looking back at we go well that's not a very good one but at the time it might have been great right so tons of things to consider but right. we'll we'll leave it at that um so yeah as always contact infos in the description if you've got comments or suggestions thanks to alia for suggesting this paper um and if i had one suggestion too it would be to go over to the fiscal frisk podcast you're, you're getting good at these. Zach's got some good stuff about fiscal monetary policy. Go So go see him over there. So for Zach and I, thanks so much for joining us today. Stay happy and healthy. And we'll catch you next time on the Health Science Podcast. 